0: Verse 28 through chapter 3, verse 3. I'm going to read from ESV. Um, The Bibles in front of you are NIV, and I think it's page 1184, if you want to follow along. Okay. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. morning, church. I want to invite you to consider somebody famous in the world that you would love to meet and that you have not yet met. Maybe it's a world leader or it's a famous athlete or an Instagram influencer or someone like that. And imagine this person shows up at your front door Unannounced. And you just woke up, you're in your PJs, you haven't brushed your teeth, you haven't put on makeup, you haven't shaved. And maybe just a minute ago, you lost your temper at a loved one and you're just frazzled. You're like, oh my gosh, who's at the door? You open the door and it's that person. What do you feel in that moment? Like super self-conscious, maybe a little shame, maybe a little frantic, maybe a little stressed, super awkward. That's how I would feel if this person entered into my home and there's messiness and it looks like it always looks and it's, there's stuff everywhere on the ground because we have kids and all that kind of stuff. You just feel revealed and exposed and it feels wrong and you just wish you just had five more minutes to prepare for this person, right? And all of us have been in those situations where someone comes to our home unannounced. You don't really do that in our culture nowadays. People get in trouble when they do that, but back in the day, people would just stop by, you know, and sometimes they stop by in the wrong time. You feel super weird. And, and likewise, that's a kind of funny situation that a lot of us have been. But our text this morning takes up the stakes really high. Because the call in this text is how would you feel and are you ready when the Lord Jesus does come to your door? When he returns, he knocks and he shows up. Are we prepared to face him? What will we feel like? How will we receive him? What will we be emotionally when we see him? And the apostle John, as a good spiritual grandfather, loves his children and wants to get them ready so that when Jesus appears, they're not shrinking back in shame, but rather excited and welcoming him with confidence. And that is my heart for you this morning, church. And visitors, I want you to have that kind of confidence so that when Jesus comes and we see his lovely face, you are ecstatic, ecstatic because you see his face, and you are not shrinking back in shame. But to be able to do that, we need to understand how to be ready, and we need to do a little work. Remember, whenever we read any literature, you have to understand the context, and so for us to understand what will come this morning, we have to go back at Pastor Ross's passage last week. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, if you have a Bible, I just want to remind you we're no longer going to have the main scripture text on the screen because we want you to learn how to have look in your own Bibles. And if you're a visitor, feel free to grab a pew Bible or look with another person. But done are the days where we have passive Christians who just let the pastor feed them, but rather we want to help you be a self-feeder. And so that you find your authority is not me, but the Word of God. So if you are a Christian here, grab a Bible. Just grab a Bible. (laughs) Grab a Bible or look on with a neighbor because it won't be on the screen unless it's a cross-reference, and it's going to be on the screen right now. All right, so this is (laughs) contradictory to me. So last week, Pastor Ross covered this passage and many others, but this is a key situation. There was a group of Christians who were part of the community, but it says they went out from us, but they were not of us for because if they were they had been of us they would have continued with us but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us now that sounds a little repetitive but what we see here is this simple principle we see throughout the scriptures in that Part of salvation is continuing, it's persevering with God. So you could be the most fanatical, professing Christian today, but if you leave tomorrow, then it shows that that fanaticism was actually not legitimate, it was not authentic. The proof that there's true transformation inside and the Holy Spirit has come, the seed of God we're going to see in a few chapters abides in you, is that it has a staying power. This word here, continued, you'll see here, continued, is the same word that we're going to see throughout the Gospel of John and 1 John, the word abide. It's the same Greek root word, meno, abide, continue, remain. So this group did not abide in Christ. They did not remain Continue with Christ. And so John is now lovingly instructing his kids, his spiritual children, his people on how do they not end up like that? How do they continue on in a world where everything is stacked against them for them to depart and no longer remain? So he's going to help us not by giving us a long to do list, but rather reminding them who they are. Let me show you this little outline on the next screen about where we're going. John is going to help them continue to abide in Christ by keeping in mind three things. What they already are, who will see, and what will be, so that we may have confidence when Christ comes. So he's going to remind them who they are, what they'll be, and who they'll see. Or some, who they'll see first. So let's get into this. 1 John chapter 2 verse 28, with your Bibles, look with me. 1 John 2 28. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. This phrase, little children, John keeps calling them little children, and when you're likely 80 to 100, which is what John is probably, everyone's little child, and you call everyone young, right? Right? you like talk to a 70-year-old little child. They're like, dude, I'm 70, but you're little to me, right? John has this kind of attitude towards them, but it's not a demeaning kind of attitude. It's a tender heart. He's not like ragging on them. Oh, you're such an immature. No, I love you. You're precious to me. You're little to me, um, and there's a tenderness in his heart. Any grandparents in here? Any grandparents? A few? Don't you just want the world for your grandchildren? You would do anything for your grandchildren. Any fathers, mothers here? Yeah, a lot of us here. You will do anything. You want the world for your children. And we see this over and over again coming out of the Apostle John's heart. His heart is brimming full of love and affection for his children. He wants the world for them. And one of the greatest things he can give them is getting them ready for that final day. The day they enter into forever. The day that begins eternity. He wants them to be ready for that day which is a thoughtful grandpa. He has his sights not on just temporary comfort and temporary momentary pleasure, but long-term joy and pleasure. He wants their happiness, but he wants their eternal happiness even more. So he's trying to get them ready for Jesus. But when he says little children, it both doubles, not just his affectionate heart, the way he relates with them, but also who we are. We are children. Like I said a few weeks ago, you're a little child. (laughs) You are, you are at the base, a child of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is the foundation of our salvation from the very beginning. And from this place of identity of what we already are comes this main command to abide. This is very important. The order is important. He doesn't say abide so you'll be a child. No, no, because you are a child, abide, continue, remain what has already been given to you. See, this word remain is essentially the idea of faithfully continuing in a relationship. So if you've been married for a long time, you have abided in that relationship faithfully. Now you can say that in a negative way, man, he's abided that wife for a while, right? But in this term, it's positively. You have faithfully endured the trials that the world has thrown at you, and you're still faithful to your spouse after X amount of years. And if you look at John, the gospel of John talks about abiding a light, a lot. what we see is that abiding has a day-to-day reality and also the results of abiding. Let me explain. In John chapter 15, a favorite chapter for many of us, John shows us that we abide in Jesus by having a lifestyle, living in God's word, meditating, and obeying his word and his love. And specifically... Abiding in his command, obeying his commandments is loving your neighbor like Christ loves them. That's the idea we see in John 15. And so when we live out John 15 day to day, not perfectly, but truly and progressively, that is the, the mark of some Christ, uh, the Christian who abides long term okay? So if you want to stay and remain faithful in a relationship for a long term, specifically Christ, that's how we do it. Day to day, imperfectly, but truly walking with Jesus, loving like he does, living in his word and prayer. So most mornings, I pray, God, help me abide in you. Help me stay connected to you in this vine all day long. And over time, it has transforming effects. But what is John's purpose, he says, why he wants them to abide? Not just because, so that, verse 28 again, so that when Jesus appears, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. There are two words here that describe Jesus' second coming. This the word appears and coming. Do you see that? Appears and coming. They're they're both describing the same reality, but with different nuances. Let me explain. Appears is the same kind of word that the authors of the Bible use for Jesus' incarnation. The revealing of, of the Son of God. Revealing what is hidden. In other words, the reality of Jesus right now is hidden from the world. None of us fully see what he will be. We only have it in Glimpse. And the world who does not have this word, do not submit to this word. They have no clue what he will be and what he is until he reveals himself fully. And then everyone will see who he is. The other word we see is coming. This word coming is the same kind of word used in Greek literature for the coming of like a king, of a conquering general, accompanied by great celebration. So likewise, when Jesus returns, it's going to be this dramatic revealing of his coming with all this pomp and all this greatness and when Jesus appears, and when He comes, there'll be two responses from every single person in this room, and every single person who will hear from this message one day and every single person in this entire planet. only two responses. For some, it's going to be confidence, and for others, it will be shame. Confidence is connected with the freedom that God's children now have, access to their heavenly father that no, never they experienced before. Though he is the holy, almighty, unapproachable one who is in light, we, through Jesus' sacrifice, have now access as adopted children to approach him with confidence, his throne of grace, as we see in Hebrews so beautifully. So those who are in this category, when Jesus returns, the trump resounds, and the Lord descends, these people are, it's the best day they've ever had, ecstatic. On the other hand, there's another group, and I don't believe this group is talking about Christians. The reason why I say that, because remember, context is king whenever you read anything, and the context are those who were not abiding, those who did not continue, those who are not in the family. These are those who were with the family, but they departed So it proved that they were not actually part of the family, and they were never one of us. And so those in this category who do not abide or remain in Christ, their reaction to Jesus' coming is not excitement or joy, but rather shrinking in shame. Do you see that in the passage 28? Look at that language, shrinking in shame. It makes me think about my puppy. When my puppy does something wrong, it kind of swip, sw- you know, like kind of does this weird motion on the ground and kind of hides under the couch when they know they've done something wrong. This shrinking in shame is this powerful, vivid picture. And this is the reality for every unbeliever without exception. Even that grandma who's really nice, who's an atheist and bakes cookies for the whole block. Even that grandma to Hitler, to everyone in between, the most extreme to the most mundane, every unbeliever who is rejecting Jesus as Lord, Savior, and treasure will be shrinking back in shame. So the first group who've been faithfully abiding, though imperfectly, are going to say with all their heart, they're going to shout, you're finally here. The one I've been waiting for my entire life, you're finally here. I cannot believe it. And then the other group are going to be shrieking in terror saying, you're, you're here. You're real. I can't believe it. Both will be in disbelief, but one will be full of joy and excitement. And the other one will be full of terror. And my prayer and longing is that every single person in this room would be part of that welcoming committee will be part of that first group, full of joy. Finally to hear that trumpet. Finally to see his face. And yet, the scriptures make clear that the road to faithfulness to Jesus is narrow, and few find it. But broad is the way to destruction, and many are in that pathway. Many on this earth will be full of terror on that day, and yet unexplainable bliss for those who have been waiting for him. How do you know what category you will be in that day? Church, visitor? How do you know you'll be able to stand with confidence when Jesus returns? Well, let's look at the next section in our passage and it's going to give us evidence on how we can know such a thing. So, look with me to verse 29. We're back in 1 John chapter 2 verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Over the years, we've tried to teach a category over and over again in our church called Fruit to Root. In other words, what you do with your lifestyle, your words, your actions, gives a clear idea of what's in the root, roots of your heart's. So if you produce bad fruit, like you lash out in anger at your children, that exposes a bad root. Your issue is that you were stressed or you didn't eat yet. You have a bad root that's exposed by your bad fruit, and vice versa. When we produce good fruits like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and all that kind of good stuff, it's, a, it's, a, it's evidence that there's good root that has taken root inside of our hearts. And what John is doing, he's doing a reverse root to fruit he first starts off talking about the fruit, and then he will then address why behind the fruit. The fruit is this. What does it say? That you have a practice of righteousness, a lifestyle of righteousness. And the reason why, what's the root behind the practicing of righteousness, according to this passage? You've been born of God. You've been born of him. For the first time, we will see that John is gonna use this term born of God or born of him. We're gonna see it 10 more times in First John. Pastor John, uh, your Ross, is gonna go into it a little bit more next week. And if you look at the gospel of John chapter one and the gospel of John chapter three, you're gonna see this picture that's gonna to come together. The idea of being born of God is completely different from being born of man, something from human procreation. In fact, it's not something that can be affected by human action or desire, but only God himself. Just like you can't just decide to be born. You, you'll be my mom. I will be born from you. No, you cannot do that. How ridiculous is that? Let me be born from you. No, you have no power over your birth. In similar manner, what we see, John build out this clear category over and over again that God is the one that bring forth, brings forth life. He's the one that brings forth new birth. And it happens from his Holy Spirit. But what we see when we go back to 1 John is that new spiritual birth precedes new behavior. Let me say that again. Spiritual birth precedes precedes, in other words, comes before new behavior. God's children have been born again, and thus they have a new nature, which over time produces more and more new behaviors. Practicing righteousness, according to this passage. This is one of the most significant differences of Christianity from any other religion out there. The foundation of our faith is not trying to be good enough to be then accepted to be a child of God, but rather... We are those who realize that we're absolutely dead in our sins, have no hope, and put our hope and trust in Jesus. And during that process, miraculously, God gives us a new heart, and we're adopted as his children as we put our faith in Jesus. It's a simultaneous, miraculous, beautiful reality that happens. And when that happens, when you have this new nature and the Holy Spirit comes, he starts transforming, he starts going to work over time, not perfectly, but truly, it transforms our hearts, and we practice righteousness more and more, right? I'm about to go on 20 years with Christ. I practice righteousness very different from one year one, and yet it was truly a reality 20 years ago. It wasn't full. It's not full now, but it's increasingly growing as the Holy Spirit is continually transforming and renovating my heart. The other religions have it backwards, Do these good things and then maybe God will accept you. Isn't it good news that God has made it this way? I would have no hope. I would have no hope, no chance. I have too little self-control on my own. I'm too impulsive on my own. I'm spiritually ADD, all on my own. Without the Holy Spirit transforming me, I'm so grateful to be a Christian. So answering the question that I asked earlier, how do you have confidence and know what category you are in? And if you could have confidence when Jesus returns, how do you know? Well, we just read it. You have a lifestyle of practicing righteousness. Not perfectly, but truly and increasingly. And if you do not have this lifestyle of increasingly practicing the righteousness of Christ in your life, you ought to be increasingly concerned about that day when he returns. And if you're not confident that you can receive him with confidence, would you please, please come talk with me? I want to pray with you. I'm begging you, do not leave this morning. I'm begging you. If you are not confident, you will be confident when you see his face. Please, please come talk with me. Pray with me. Jesus has made a way for you with his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's available for you. But I want to remind you that Though these actions, these fruits are evidence that you've been born of God, we're talking about Christianity here. All of this activity is rooted in identity. I want to remind you further, just like John is reminding you, that this is not earning your way. You're not earning your way. John is going to further remind you of your identity. Let's look at this. This is how you have confidence and how you can have power to live righteously. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. One of the most precious passages in the Bible. Again, look at your Bible, please. First John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. When John uses this word... See or behold, he is calling us, inviting us to ponder, to pry into this mystery, this reality. Don't skim over it, but double click on it. What does that love look like? Love from God is not just something ethereal or something feeling. It's action. It comes out and manifests in reality. What does it look like? Well, it looks like this. The Father has given us the right to be called children of God, and so we are. And the way he says this language, the right suggests that it's a gift. It's not something we can earn or deserve, or it's not something that he will take away. It's a gift of love, the gift of new birth. This is not generic children of God. You know how people in the world talk about everyone is a child of God? And in one sense, everyone is a creature. Created by God, and He is the Creator. And so, in one sense, He is the Father of all. But the Bible doesn't use that language, really. It really primarily talks about His people that have been born again, that are His, that know Him. It's a special group of people that He's adopted to be His. It's a privilege, it's a marvel that you and I could call Him Father. There's a powerful story I read this last week from a Lutheran missionary. Eh? named Bartholomus Zingimbalg. Please forgive me if I butchered his name, but it's a hard name. He ministered in India in the early 1700s among Hindus. And he was translating 1 John, and he had a Hindu youth helping him translate this passage. And when they came to this portion of the text, the youth changed the translation and wrote this. That we should be allowed to kiss his feet, not that we should be called children of God. The missionary asked, well, Why do you do that? Why do you change the, the Bible? You, you know you can't do that. <laughs> and, and the youth said this Children of God? That is too much. That's too high. I'd rather write, Allowed to kiss his feet. This is absurd that we should be called children of God. Do you marvel at the gracious absurdity that you and I could be called children of God? You and I, with all of our past, with all of our mess, we could be called children of God? One of the most influential books of, of the last century was written by a man named J.I. Packer. And as I was doing sermon prep this last week. Alex Kearney reminded me of this beautiful section, and it's gonna be on the screen from J.I. Packer. I love this so much. This, this section has transformed a lot of people over the years by the Spirit. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. Next slide. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. He's my father. I remember I got to be careful. This takes like 30 minutes, but I remember when I first start getting this reality, I was sitting in a prayer in my closet, which was while I was in a discipleship school, and I was meditating on this fact that God is my father, and I, and I was memorizing Romans 8, and I was just saying it over, God, you're my dad. You're my dad. You're my dad. God is my dad, and then one moment, it just clicked. You're my dad. God's my dad, and it just transformed me so much. And it's continually transformed me as I grow and more into that reality. It's not something you get once. It's something that you grow deeper into. And John repeats himself again. And let's, let's go back to our passage. He says, so we are. Do you see how repetitive John is throughout First John? Over and over again, John repeats himself like a grandpa does. Telling the same old stories over and over again. But not because he's forgetful, but because we are. And because he's a good grandpa, he knows the things that his people, his children often forget, and we forget that we're children of God, and so we are. God is our father. John is constantly going to remind them of their identity, because if they know their identity, the activity will come as a result. And some of us grew up in church cultures that had a so-called gospel that all they did is talked about the activity and never about your identity. And that that will destroy you. That will crush you. That is no good news at all. This is the good news we have here. He's going to hammer the point again. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Look at verse 2 in your Bibles. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Here is heart again. Beloved, see the tender heart of John. Likewise, you are beloved, church. You are beloved to me, and especially beloved before the Father. We are God's children now in the present tense. We need to be reminded of this all the time because though we are God's children, our inheritance has not yet fully been received. You can imagine someone being poor and struggling greatly in life and them telling you, believe it or not, Sam, I'm actually a prince or a princess. And you're like, no way. Look at you. You're so raggedy. You're struggling so much. There's no way you're royalty. No way. No way. In similar manner, right now in this world, Satan rages against us. The world is trying to betray us. Our flesh is working with the world. There's a lot stacked against us. And in this age, we may suffer. We may struggle. We may be persecuted. And so right now, it doesn't look like we're royal yet. It doesn't look like we're children of the king. What we are is not fully evident in the present because we have not fully received our inheritance. And so John is going to do something interesting in this passage. He's going to solidify our identity of what has already taken place while also giving us a vision of what will soon take place when Jesus returns. So continue to abide in Christ by keeping in mind what we already are. And now let's look at what we'll look at. Verse 2 again. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Why? because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus appears, those who are confidently welcoming him won't just get to meet the one we've been longing for one day, but will also have a further transformation. The moment you become a child of God, the spirit of God comes and inhabits your heart and starts transforming you, your heart, your character, your desires. But when Jesus comes and we see his face, the transformation will be complete. We'll be like him. What does it mean that we'll be like Jesus? Well, it doesn't mean that you're going to be God. You'll always be a creative being. And in some passages throughout the New Testament, we see this picture that we'll have this glorified body, like this body, but really like not like it also. Glorious. But this text focuses on our character, and that's what I'm going to focus on. When Jesus comes back, we're going to be like him. And what does the text say that he's like? He's the righteous one. He is pure. It's going to transform our hearts and our character. Can you fathom such a day, church? We will never again hurt a loved one with our words or our passivity. We'll never be irritable. We'll never be tempted to conform to the tyrannical opinions of others. We finally fear free of the fear of man. We'll never be proud again, never be arrogant again never be selfish or lustful, will never be sinfully fearful or anxious, will never rage with unrighteous anger. That's crazy. Every single one of us one day will never sin again. Isn't that crazy? Every single one of us who know Jesus, who are his children, that's your identity, that's your future. But how will this happen? What does the text say? How will this happen? We will do what? We will see him. Why would seeing Jesus transform us like this? Well, the text doesn't particularly say, but we can get a little hint if we do a quick look at 2 Corinthians 3. You can look on the screen. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, this is present tense, are being transformed, continuous tense, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. So what what are we seeing? I'm not gonna spend a long time here. But without physically seeing Jesus bodily yet, when we see Christ in his word and in his church and in his ways, we increasingly become more like him as we see him. We imitate what we see. Likewise, when we actually see his face in his fullness, faith shall be sight. When we see him, there will be total Transformation. And I think it's safe to say this, that when you and I sin, it's when we lose sight of God. We lose sight of the face of God. When we see his glorious face, we will forever be changed. Because how can you go back to the filth of the world and feast in it when you see his face, when you make eye contact with him? Could you? Could you go back ignoring God and having devotion to the idols of your lives or trying to make your job your savior? Would you be tempted to go back to that other lover? Would you be tempted to go back to that drug or addiction? Would you be tempted to continue to chase after riches or the approval of man? No, you see his face, everything else fades away. It would be impossible to want those things once you see him. The reason why we want those things so bad and they're, they're, they're so appealing is because we see him so dimly. But then as we see him rightly, everything's like, eh, it's easy. And though this moment has not yet taken place, it is a future event. It does something for us now. Let's look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him, himself, sorry, purifies himself as he is pure. Do you see that in verse 3? And everyone who thus hopes in him, Christ, purifies himself, us, as Christ is pure. What we believe about the future influences today. What you believe about the future will influence how you live in the day-to-day. Okay, let me use this illustration. Imagine someone coming to your door and knocking and reporting to you that you're actually the long-lost heir of a royal family. Let's just call it Genovia. okay? Why are you laughing? What is... Just kidding. And they tell you that you have this long-lost inheritance, and you're royal, and in 10 years, you're going to inherit this entire kingdom. You're going to have a coronation, and you do some Google fact-checking, and indeed, it is a real nation, and and you find out with a lawyer that is all legit, and for some reason, they didn't tell you for years. I don't know why, but that backstory is not important for the movie. I mean, this story. (laughs) And so, they tell you, you will inherit in 10 years. And in the meantime, you need to be Able to represent that kingdom, you are legally royal, but it has not yet been fully realized. You're still kind of pretty broke. Would that affect you today? Would that affect you? Yeah, it would. If you're yeah, it would. <laughs> you bet it would. No matter how financially financially difficult your life would be, your hope and confidence of the soon coronation and the inheritance you're gonna all reach would radically affect affect your peace, your contentment, even in light of your meager salary. It would affect the way you carry yourself because you know the way you talk is representing the kingdom. You wouldn't do anything or you ought not to do anything that would jeopardize the reputation of your family, your kingdom. You'd watch what you say, what you do in secret. You would avoid secret, shameful acts. You would speak with people in kindness and love. It would radically transform everything. But also you can imagine that in that scenario, there would be days and seasons where you would forget and would just feel so far away. Man, that's so far away. I'm never going to get that inheritance. Oh, is that inheritance real? It's been so long since I was told that. Am I really royal? There'll be days where you would regress and forget who you are and what you will be. And so you kind of go back to your old lifestyle, go back to your own way, old ways, and you forget that you are royal. And you would be needed to be reminded confidently, maybe by a driver, that you are who you are, right? You'd be confidently reminded. I can't believe how much I remember that movie. (laughs) You'd be reminded who you are and what you'll be. And that would fuel you for another day, another year, until you can finally have that inheritance and that coordination. Similar, likewise, this is the case for every true child of God, church. We have this great hope, the hope of one day seeing Christ face-to-face and entering into our inheritance. And when we keep this in front of our eyes, it reminds us regularly through through Christ, his word, and the church. It radically transforms us in the day-to-day. It purifies us because Jesus is pure. If we have given ourselves to spiritual toxins, church, and pollutants, it's because we have forgotten the purity of our Lord Jesus. So, oh, church, behold Christ in your heart right now. See him in your heart right now. What you will be one day as you see him and behold him, the pure one, the one who has no evil, in him is no darkness, not at all. We get to be with him forever. Let that transform your heart in the presence. And over time, when we have our eyes set on him, not perfectly, but truly and steadily, it transforms our heart day in and day out. Church, have you forgotten who your father is? Have you forgotten that he owns everything and he deeply cares about you and he has a good inheritance for you and it's coming and he has perfect timing on when we're going to get it? Church, have you forgotten his purity and live like you weren't royal, live like you're not representing the king? Remember who you are. You are God's child now. God is your father now, not then, now. And then when we will see him face to face, we will be perfectly pure and righteous. Church, remember, listen, remember, you're gonna make eye contact with Jesus one day. Can you imagine that? We're gonna see his eyes. He has eyes. We're gonna make eye contact with him. We're gonna see him. You're going to see him in all of his glory, no longer hidden or dimly, but fully. But only God's children have this kind of access. Only his children can see him like this. So if you're not, again, if you're not sure you'll see him like this and you'll have confidence in his coming, please do not leave. This is one of the things in life that you cannot be uncertain about. And I want to end with this. There's a, one of my favorite songs that I used to listen on repeat when I first became a Christian is uh, Charlie Hall, 2006, Chasing Daybreak. Come for me. This is the chorus. You'll come again with a shout. Like a thief in the night, you'll come riding on clouds. Finally, the voice I have, I have followed for life has a glorious face that is lit up with light. And you'll come for me. No more pain, Peace. No more fear, release, just lost and consumed with my glorious King. Church, that, that's what we get one day. This is not a sermon full of to-dos, but is a sermon calling you to remember who you are and what you'll be and who you'll see, and then let that transform the day-to-day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this truth that we are children of God, and so we are. Now we are, even in our mess, even in our sin, even in our struggle, that is our identity. And for anyone in this room that has forgotten their identity or feels impossible to believe despite because of their background or their shame, Lord, let those lies be eradicated and that your children live in the reality of who they are. They are royal, they have an inheritance. They're going to inherit the whole world, and most importantly, they're going to see your face. And we're going to be with you for eternity. And Lord, if there's anyone here who does not have that confidence, that inside, secretly, they have a bunch of shame and sin that they're hiding, and things that have competed and have taken priority over you, Lord, I pray that you'd bring them into the light. The light would shine into the darkness in the hidden places, and bring them out to the light so they can have confidence, so that when you come, we will not shrink in, in shame at your appearing, but with full of confidence and joy, being your welcoming committee. So Lord, let that be the reality for every one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen.